We'd all love to spend more time outside, see more birds, have more fun, connect with friendly people. Our happiness depends on it, but modern life pushes us away from nature. Enter Birda. Birda is the new free app that boosts your bird watching experience, fun birding challenges, leaderboards, and cool badges turn sing bird life into a game. And better still, all the sightings go to help bird conservation. Come bird with Birda. Sign up today. It's free. You can find Birda, B-I-R-D-A, on all app stores. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. The annual winter finch forecast distributed by our friends at the Finch Research Network was released this week. This is the 25th year of the report, the silver anniversary, which was started by Ron Pittaway, who sadly passed on this year, but continued by Tyler Hoare and a team of birders, biologists, and foresters who continue to make these predictions based on the state of cone and berry crops across the Canadian boreal. The big question on everyone's mind in the wake of the report, is this going to be a big year for eruptive finches into southern Canada and the lower 48? Your crossbills, your evening, your pine grosbeaks, your red poles, and whatnot. We can go species by species, or you can follow the link in the show notes to the more detailed reports. But the rundown, as it is is that most species are going to stay in the north, particularly in the east, but there might be some movement in the Great Lakes and parts west. We'll see. Some exceptions include pine siskins who have already started leaving the boreal in numbers and should have a sustained strong flight all winter. And both crossbills, in particular, the highly nomadic white-winged crossbills. Red crossbills also might be on the move. Maybe later in the winter, though, get your recording tools out as those different call types could turn up in weird places. Link in the show notes to the full report. Get your finch on this winter. Hopefully, fingers crossed. One reminder before we move on, don't forget about the Rio Grande Valley Birding Festival. We'll be there. Will you? Registration is open now. There's another link in the show notes for you. On the show this week, people and birds come together in a lot of different ways, some obvious to us as birders and some that stretch even the birdiest imagination. That is the subject of a documentary in the works now called The Public Life of Birds. I chat with the director and producer, David Walsh, all after this week's Rare Birds. <laughs> This is your rare bird focus for the end of September, very beginning of October 2023. The increasingly remarkable American flamingo exodus continues as two more states are added to the list of those who have hosted birds in the wake of Hurricane Idalia. A single American flamingo was seen in Smithville, Missouri this week, and possibly the same bird was seen a day later in Chase County, Kansas. Interestingly, these are not first records for either state. Missouri had a single flamingo that was blown north in the wake of Hurricane Barry in 2019, hung around in the boot heel for a little while. And Kansas, a little shockingly, has records of a flock at Quivira National Wildlife Refuge in the 1920s and a single bird in the 70s. So a third record for Kansas. Photos taken of the Kansas bird strongly suggest that it is one of the two flamingos that were seen in southern Ohio at the beginning of the month. You might remember that as the sighting that started us off on this wild ride. Fascinating to think that this individual was not only traveling westward rather than east or south, but that it evaded detection for the better part of a month before being seen again. In other flamingo news, Virginia had yet another sighting at Chincoteague, their first since the beginning of the month. 
Birds are still being seen in Florida, North Carolina, South Carolina, Kentucky, and Louisiana. Things are starting to pick up in Alaska this week as a Pacific Swift was photographed at Nome, only the third mainland record of this species in North America. And on those Bering Sea islands, highlights include Eurasian Hobby, Wood Warbler, and Little Bunting on St. Paul, and Tree Pivot at Gamble. Those are the highlights for this past week, but for the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash rba. You can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and in ABA community. Birds are, without a doubt, one of the most commonly encountered elements of human culture across time, across nations, across peoples, in all parts of the world. Perhaps nowhere is that quite as evidence as Las Vegas, Nevada, where humanity of every possible description comes together in a city that exists on the edge of habitability. But here, there are birds, both native and exotic, and people who love them. Those relationships are the subject of the documentary, The Public Lives of Birds, whose director and producer David Welch is in the process of completing with the help of a Kickstarter campaign. He is here to talk about our relationship with birds in this fascinating, strange place. Welcome, David. It's great to talk to you. Yeah, great to talk to you, too. Thanks for having me, Nate. Of course. So why birds? You're not a, not a birder. And why Las Vegas? Yes, that's a good question. So uh, my background is uh, I, I'm a documentarian. Um, and as you said, I'm not a bird. Uh, I would say I would have always been a bird appreciator, you know, sure. in yeah. the way that most people are, you know, living on the East Coast uh, before Las Vegas. Um, I always admired the robins that would drop by. And in New Zealand, where I'm from originally, um, you know, I lived in a wooded area, which was very different from Las Vegas. So a very different kind of... Mm-hmm terrain there was a wooded valley i'd go out and i'd be able to see the tuis and bellbirds and whatever whatever native birds were around and i would appreciate bird song but it, that was as far as it went um yeah. it wasn't i was not actively chasing birds i wasn't getting up at what i would consider to be unreasonably <laughs> early hours you know with a Fair telescope yeah. chasing down my favorite birds but what happened is uh in say just before the pandemic, I saw a, a talk uh, by the anthropologist Eduardo Cohn, who wrote a book called How Forests Think. And mm-hmm. you would think from the title of that book, it would be about a lot of the, the theories that are around these days about how you know, the, 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 the networks that, um, yeah. commu- that trees communicate with, uh, with the, these fungal networks. Uh, but it was actually about how people think about forests and that Mm -hmm. was key is so how do people think about this forest and how do they see themselves as being part of this larger network and that was the beginning of of my thinking and so i found myself in the pandemic in las vegas um i'd moved out to the west coast uh i wanted something a little bit quieter you wouldn't think las vegas would be (laughs) the most likely choice but that's where i found myself right as everything was closing down Uh, you know everybody has their own pandemic experience and seeing the shutdown i got to see all the whole las vegas strip shut down and that let that left me with a lot of time to just i was just wandering about just seeing the city exploring this new city um i was doing some anthropological field work as well at the same time about indigenous casinos and as part of that i wanted to understand the whole ecosystem of the city on foot and what i became aware of was the bird life that you could see everywhere. And to me, when I first arrived in Las Vegas, it was seemed very arid or to the point of being, if, 
it seemed uninhabited by comparison with New Zealand, where I was from, where I was used to this sort of dense forest areas. But of course, nothing could be further from the truth. There are something close to 500 different types of birds uh, yeah. in, in, in the area alone. And so I became very aware of the birds that were all around me. And, that I, and then, of course, I encountered the issues that Las Vegas is, uh, is facing you know, at this very moment, which is, you know, the water levels are dropping. I think it, with Lake Mead, it's like lower than 35% in terms of their water mm -hmm. reserves. And so that's a major problem. And people are seeing it day to day in terms of, you know, even how they, whether they can keep grass, the kinds of gardens they can have. Yeah. And so it, the whole city is having to adapt. And so in a city that's so geared towards, uh, you know, everyone drives a car, you know, it's sort of a, there's not, there's not a whole lot of thought day to day for a lot of the people here that I've encountered for, you know, and someone can correct me if they're wrong, but in my own experience, there's not much awareness of the natural world around them. And in fact, mm -hmm. the desert itself seems to be, except for people maybe who were born here and raised, you know, keep away from the whole strip and in, in the center of, of the city, there's not much awareness of there even being a world outside of the strip in, in the immediate environment. And so what I became interested in was how do you make people more aware of that environment? And one way for me was through birds. And so that started me on this rather lengthy and for me fascinating journey, starting with bird watching, you know, with the Audubon Society, people who go out and engage with native wildlife. And then it led me on a whole journey through uh, all kinds of networks that are within the city. It's, it's a show business town. So yeah. there are bird performers, less than they used to be. And whether you object to that or not is another question entirely, entirely but they exist. And um, in this extensive parrot networks, you know, the exotic mm -hmm. bird networks. And so tracing these different networks has been a big part of this, this whole project. And it's taken the form of a feature-length documentary. This is my second feature-length documentary, but it's a, it's a much larger scope than, I, than I'm used to, and it's been mm -hmm. fascinating, and it's wonderful to see all of the different kinds of relationships that can e exist between people and birds. Are there stories about people's relationship with birds that you feel like you could only tell in Las Vegas? Oh, most definitely, yes. Uh, so uh, I can give an example. A recent example is... Uh, I've been dealing with the burlesque hall of fame, which is, um, right. It's like they're very, wearing feathers more, almost as much as the birds are. Exactly. <laughs> and it's a very, uh, it's very much a, a Vegas institution. You know, the whole idea of the Vegas showgirl. I mean, when you think of Las Vegas, the, for mm -hmm. most people, that's what they imagine is these people wearing feathers. And obviously it uh, also, uh, as I've found, um, through my different interviews that, there are people who have performed with birds as part of their burlesque routines. So there's one particular uh, entertainer, I would say, would be the word, uh, is named Dusty Summers, uh, who we've been interviewed. And um, she is known as one of Las Vegas's only nude magicians. Uh, she was very active in the <laughs> 1970s, uh, and she's still active today, uh, still doing her striptease act and then performing magic. And things like that, and she and birds were very much an important part of her routine. She still keeps three birds in her home that she has very, you know, that she, that she loves, and she's had for many decades. And so it's um that 
for me, is one of these only in, in Las Vegas kind of stories. Yeah, for sure. I can't imagine. I, I don't think I've ever heard of a, in my sort of engagement with the birding community, a nude musician, nude magician, not a nude musician, <laughs> with, there may be those as well, but uh, who, who, has a, has, who has pet birds. And birds are so long-lived, especially some of the parrots, mm-hmm. that you know you feel like they're almost growing with the act as the entertainer is growing and changing with their yeah. act. <laughs> Very much, and there's very much a concern about you know how what what their life might the life of the bird might be like after these people pass on. Many times yeah, they're, they're sure. older people too, and um, so we've even found ourselves talking to uh, pet crematoriums and the whole experience as well of like when you you lose uh, a, a loved bird, you know, and and what that whole process of of grief is like, you know, and how how with uh, they actually have fun- in some cases there have been um, they have a funeral service for the bird and they have a special, there's a whole, whole process. And, uh, you know, it is a, it is a real relationship. It's not, um, you know, they have, they have, they become very close and the way they communicate is very unique and special. And it was new to me because I hadn't, um, I've kept rabbits and, uh, mm-hmm. that's a whole different learning curve as well in terms of understanding this nonverbal language. But, you know, once once you've decoded that language, it's it can be a very rich relationship, or at least uh, you know with birds, it certainly seems to be from everyone we've spoken to. Did you have a plan for the kind of people you were going to seek out for this film? It feels like you started in, in a very natural place the the Audubon mm-hmm. community, the bird watching community, of which there's you know Las Vegas is is pretty well known. Clark County is one of the better birding spots in Nevada, as, as mm-hmm. I have been told by people who have spent some time there, and then kind of follow this path outward or did you have sort of a, a well-defined path to to go down as you're seeking out bird people bird adjacent people ah uh, well you know I, I wish i could say i had um I had the whole thing planned out from beginning to end <laughs> right. you know a perfect a perfect picture in my mind but um what i you know i because my training is in anthropology where you really you have to follow your nose and you don't mm-hmm. want to um I didn't want to manufacture the, the portrait that I was creating of the city based on my preconceptions. It's never going to be as full or rich or detailed as if yeah. you listen to people and, and, and follow their recommendations and continue on following the, these different chains and threads. I never would have imagined, for instance, that I'd end up talking to uh, feather shops. That's certainly mm-hmm. not something that I thought I'd do. And um, there are many other different kinds of interviews that I didn't expect. One was with a bird groomer. You know, I didn't really know much about grooming being involved. And the person that we're speaking to is also happens to be a Bette Midler impersonator in her spare time as well. So she's a oh, Bette Midler impersonating <laughs> bird groomer. So another very Vegas story. And if you're not yeah, sure. open to those things, they, they don't happen. So you have to, but I, I did have a general framework in mind in terms of what I, you know, I, 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 as I said, I came at it knowing that I wanted to talk about what we can learn from birds in terms of how they've adapted to the environment, but also how people can in- understand the world around them through birds. And so, you know, that was, that's been the guiding principle throughout. And how do people look at birds as possibly a way forward in dealing with the very real issues that Las Vegas as a city is, uh, is dealing with now? It, it, Las Vegas doesn't feel entirely sustainable. No. To me, maybe maybe it hasn't for decades, and yet it's persisted even even so. 
do do birds offer a, a pathway? Uh, does appreciation of birds give people some insight into into how Las Vegas can persist into the future? It certainly seems to me. I mean, I I, I can't obviously not being a, a soothsayer. I couldn't tell right. you if if Las Vegas will survive if everybody suddenly buys a bird. I don't know if that's necessarily <laughs> <Hope> only the, <laughs> only the solution. But you, there are certain ways of looking at the world that would help make a change in terms of how people are dealing with their environment, just in terms of the use of waste, the, the, the amount that they're driving, how they interact with their city. And I think one very early on when I was dealing with Red Rock Audubon, um, I went to a mindful birding session. And so mm-hmm. that was all about, yeah, I'm sure you've covered that before. And Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a thing these days. Yeah. Yeah. And so probably the people, I'm sure the people listening to it don't need me to explain it to them, but um, I think being mindful and aware of your surroundings and just start stepping back and taking a moment to observe what's around you and be conscious of that can only have a positive effect. And um, I was talking to, we actually talked with Zen Monk as well, amazingly. Mm-hmm. It was just another only in Las Vegas story where he started out as a, uh, he was um, in Frank Sinatra's band performing at the Sands and places like that. And I think he played for Sammy Davis Jr. I think it was the oboe. And um, he eventually became a Zen monk. So he decided that at some point in his life, he he wanted to become you know a Zen master, which he is now and leads the Zen center there. But um, he, one thing he encounters there regularly when, when talking to people who come to him and he keeps birds, by the way, and is a part of the Audubon Society there. Hmm. And so it's, you know, Full being circle. aware of your surroundings, very important. <laughs> yeah. But um, he, a lot of people, you know, it's there's a lot of overstimulation. I mean, you get that in many cities, yeah. you know, or New York or wherever you might be, but Las Vegas has a very particular kind of overstimulation and it very much gears you towards for i'm sure most of the people listening have been if most people have been to las vegas at some point but if anyone hasn't you know if you go into a convenience store there are slot machines and people smoking if you go and you know it's it's everywhere so you've got gambling stimulation alcohol you know cannabis dispensaries everywhere like that's it's a part of the environment and um and it's very hard to that shuts you off to some degree at least in my opinion it does and so i think to be honest a lot that is what attracts a lot of people to las vegas and from what i've experienced in terms of what the people i've spoken to Mm -hmm. and so i think being more mindful and some people do it through zen meditation other people through birding but being more keenly aware of your environment and how the i think the philosopher timothy morton talked about how it takes a big, it's a, it's a quite a cognitive leap to go from turning a key in, in the ignition of your car to the idea that you're affecting the climate. Mm-hmm. You know, the climate change is happening, but people need to make that leap. And I think that, you know, that in some, in, in some way, this might help people make that leap. I can't, you know, that's the hope anyway. Yeah. But there's certainly, it's interesting that, uh, that a Zen master would be so interested in birds. I mean, there's, there's a, there's kind of a subtle tenacity to birds, I think, especially those that probably can be found on in a place like the Strip in such a you know extremely urbanized environment. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to think about a more extreme, unnatural environment than the mm-hmm. Las Vegas Strip. 
you know, what do you think that most Las Vegas residents, what do you think most of their relationships are with the birds that they see, the grackles, the house sparrows, the rock pigeons just walking around? Do they see them as survivors like them or do they see them as vermin? Yeah, that's a good question. So I, I, it's a question I asked as well, where I, I was very, because I see you, that's, those are the birds you see everywhere, the, yeah. the, the grackles. And um, it, I, one thing I noticed is, if, apart from when you talk to people who are already aware of birds, for the people who aren't, you know, it's not a, it's not a focus for them, they're invisible. They don't seem to see them much at all. Yeah. Or, as you said, they're pests. And so I actually, you know, as part of this journey, I even talked to um, pigeon control experts um so people who make that their livelihood and you know people who who deal every day with you know casinos and whoever Mm -hmm. it might be uh who regard them simply as as pests as inconveniences as uh you know health risks more than as as a part of the 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 community there and so i think noted coming to notice those um you know those just those common quote-unquote birds you know, and who are, con- you know, considered as bullies. I'm sure, you know, some mm-hmm. of the, your listeners would ha- would view them that way too. Uh, and, you know, do. they wouldn't be wrong, but they also contribute to the, to the ecosystem in, in a very, you know, some very important ways. And so being more, at least being conscious of them is, is a start. But it's very interesting. It's a more complex picture than you'd think. So even the pigeon control, one of the pigeon control people I've spoken to actually he was, he's what you call a humane pigeon control person. He, you know, so he doesn't believe in, uh, you know, stopping pigeons breeding. He simply relocates them to somewhere else and often takes them into his own home. So I understand hmm. he has many, many pigeons in his own home and keeps his birds and he's always had birds from childhood. So he yeah. loves birds and has a great appreciation for them. And that's what led him to that job. And it's hmm. not pigeon control person is not necessarily a job you would think would lead from a childhood love of birds but and that's what that's what happened and so he's uh, a part of that network too just in general you know what interests you about making documentaries and and did you find bird people in all their various forms to be an interesting subject yes i mean it's very yeah I, i the answer is to, to your second question about is uh, yeah they're, they're, it's it's the whole range the whole spectrum mm-hmm. of life it's not just one type of person which is is wonderful so I get to speak to yeah. every uh, every person every facet every walk of life and um, in terms of what attracts me to making documentaries I I love having the opportunity to live another life that's not my own even if it's just mm-hmm. for a day and I'm sure. You know, Nate, you have a little that experience yourself. You know, just being able to sit down and talk to people in the in these podcast interviews. You know, where you get to learn so much about a life that you haven't led, and uh, it's it's a um, it and you know, in my last documentary, I got to immerse myself in uh, a whole world that I would never normally interact with, and I was I was tracing um the life of the poet C. A. Conrad. I had no uh, experience of um the poetry world to start off with, but then it led mm-hmm. into being a whole murder investigation in Tennessee. So that's another case of following your nose. So yeah. he led a, a life of, um, you know, just being, has being 
gay in rural Pennsylvania had led to a life of, uh, you know, a lot of um, obstacles and difficulties, you know, in the 1970s and 80s and then the AIDS crisis. And then um, he uh, had lost a lot of people. And then, you know, it ended with um, one of his partners going off to Tennessee in an intentional community and um, being murdered there. And it was, uh, so that whole investigation took me into places that I never would have thought have. So yeah, instead of, sure. uh, you know, half, uh, sometimes these little interviews take you in, in, in very interesting directions, or at least interesting to me. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you know, the, the whole process is kind of fun to put these things together, I imagine. Mm-hmm. When you're finished with this, when you're completed with this documentary, what are you going to take from it about birds, be it from people who are bird watchers or people who are bird rehabilitators or any of that? Is, is there something that sort of a common thread that interests you that you're going to take from this project? That's a, that's a difficult question to answer because it's mm-hmm. a whole, you know, it's as many layered as the, the, you know, it's the whole spectrum of life of people that I'm talking to. So it's, you can, uh, you, they, any, every relationship is different, you know, between every person and every bird and every type of bird is different. And they're all, they all have their unique quirks and their unique elements. And that's, that's true of the people that I'm talking to as well. And um, mm. I think it's important to find, you know, it's about finding an appreciation for things that you, you know, or a person that you might not necessarily want to stop and talk to. Or, you know, normally under, a, you know, if you're passing by on the street, you know, you wouldn't immediately go, that's the, that's the person I'd seek out. And it's true of birds too. So, you know, how, how, you can suddenly pay attention to a grapple and look at the mm-hmm. way they're living their life and interacting with people and the, the scrappy, rough life that they seem to be living is, you know, this this is a kind of poetry in it. And so I guess the poetry of the everyday is what I take away from it in a, in a more abstract kind of way. And that's what I hope that I'm achieving with this documentary. And for anyone mm-hmm. who contributes to this documentary, we'll see at the end that it's about these little moments moments between people moments between people in their environment moments between people and their birds and um and how you can capture those little pieces of poetry every day in some small way so what can people do to help we'll do the the action part of the the interview what do you hope people can do to see this project through Sure. So I have a Kickstarter campaign that I'm running. So anybody who is not familiar with Kickstarter, um, you go on that website today and look up uh, The Public Lives of Birds. That is the name of the film. Uh, and no contribution is too small. Even a dollar or five dollars helps us reach our goal of uh, $45,000. Uh, but we have multiple tiers that we're offering in terms of rewards. That, uh, yeah, so various swag and uh, even we're offering uh, sessions and how to uh, have a bird friendly how to make your garden more bird friendly so that's being supported by a member of the red rock audubon they're giving a session there we have a, a session on mindful birding as well uh, so there's a whole range of different offerings and if you contribute you will be ensuring that this film sees a life in the wider world uh, a, a bulk of it has been filmed we have about 85 to 95 more than 85 to 90 percent filmed um, we're editing right now, but you know the fi- the post production uh, is expensive. So music, color grading, all the different 
aspects afterwards. And it also takes time. That's the most expensive mm-hmm. thing. And so the time it takes to make it. And so any contribution you can, whoever is listening, who has interest in seeing this film should help bring it into the world and, and, and donate to that campaign. And it uh, will be ending on October 23rd, I believe. Um, at uh, Eastern time at 12, at one o'clock um, PM and Pacific time. So three hours before that in the East Coast. David Welch is the producer and director of The Public Lives of Birds, which he hopes will be completed by a Kickstarter project. The link for that will be in the show notes. Please check it out. Uh, David, thanks so much for your time and uh, good luck with the project. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you very much again, uh, uh, Nate, for having me. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, the best way to support it is to join the ABA. You get a lot of great benefits, including magazines, discounts to partners like Princeton University Press, Corner Lab of Ornithology, Beauty of Books, and more. You can find out how to do that at aba.org slash join. Shoutouts this week to Julie Richardson of Bainbridge Island, Washington, Bill Shields of Wheaton, Maryland, William Curtis of Tyler, Texas, Mary Claire Alvine and family of Atlanta, Georgia, and Deborah Crooks of Alameda, California, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted this podcast as their reason for doing so. One of of their reasons for doing so, I'm sure. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome to the ABA. Executive director of the ABA and executive producer of the podcast is Wayne Klockner, who points out that the Flamingo Las Vegas is, thus far, still a historic casino and not a rare bird alert. Technical production is by John Lowry, who notes that Hurricane Hillary brought wedge-rumped storm petrels within 50 miles of the Vegas Strip, which would have prompted a required change to Seabird's Palace rather than Caesar's Palace. Additional help comes from Maggie Fitzgibbon and Greg Neese, who treat nocturnal flight call recordings like they treat the tables at the Bellagio as a place to rack up chips. You can find us online at ABA.org, on social media most everywhere, as American Birding Association on Blue Sky, we're at ABA Birds in Vegas. As in most Purple Martin Sparrow disputes in those gourd racks, the house always wins. Questions, comments, and come to podcast at eba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Bird Like Tom. See you next week. <laughs>